Our scripture text tonight will be in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And our focus will be on verses 24 to 30. Of course, I, I do want to take us back to verse 14. Uh, there's a, it adds a little bit of context to the, some of the themes that you'll see here in verses 24 to 30. Mark chapter 7. Hear now God's word from Mark 7, beginning at verse 14 and going down to verse 30. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray tonight as we've heard your word read, that you will, by your Spirit, be our teacher in the word preached. And I pray that the very words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We all typically have our prejudices against any host of events, any host of people for variety of reasons. It, it may be because you just simply had a bad experience with them. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of times when someone makes a slight against you, perhaps particularly it was a personally offensive, that everything that they do, that, that's sort of looming in the back of your head. And there's, one, there's sometimes whenever we look at people like that and they continue to show and exhibit some of the same behaviors, that we typically believe they are beyond help, they are beyond repair, and sometimes maybe even they're beyond the possibility of salvation. 
I'm sure that each and every one of you would probably have someone like that in your mind that you just cannot wrap your heads around. How? What is it that makes this person tick? What is it that makes this person the way that they are? Now, you see that and you hear that, and we, we know that there's always that, that one person or that one event, and it could be for any number of reasons. And yet, when we ask, them to ask ourselves the question, are they really beyond help? Are they really beyond salvation? This is one of the very things that is central here in this passage in Mark. In Jesus' words here, he's dealing with someone who is a Syrophoenician. Now, to let you know of some of the history between Jews and Gentiles, it's not a very good history, particularly of this particular woman's uh, nation of birth, particularly in the land in which they are, which they're going to, which Jesus is in, entire inside of. We're going to see here in a little bit what, exactly more of what's going on, but the hatred and the prejudice and the disdain runs really deep. It runs really deep, not just about uh, ethnic differences, cultural differences, but really, different, but really issues of where there would be outright violence in the taking of life between Jew and Gentile. This sort of animosity, this sort of tension that exists throughout Jesus' ministry of how the Jews in Jesus' day would typically look at Gentiles is going to be challenged here in this passage today, even as it was challenged when it comes to food in Jesus' previous parable, or at least previous statements in verses 14 to 23, to where you have to recognize that for Jesus, that he's dealing with people who don't simply see food as defiling but he's dealing with a mentality that sees people that seeing other people as defiled. More than just the food, but people themselves. And Jesus shows us how to look at that. Because we all have, have people like that in our lives. And when we see what Jesus is putting on display here, what Jesus is teaching us is that he demonstrates his grace in his mission to the Gentiles. He's demonstrating grace as he moves forward in mission to the Gentiles. And I want to show you that and unpack that in two particular ways. First, I want you to see his mission to the Gentiles in verses 24 to 26. And then second, I want you to see his grace to the Gentiles as well in verses 27 to 30. First, the mission, and then second, the grace. Let's look at verse 24, because he's actually going out to the Gentiles. Verse 24, and he arose and went away from the re- to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if I were, we were going through the Gospel of Mark like we're doing at Reedville and like we did in, in, in Dr. Piper's homiletics uh, class last semester, we would be able to see some, some more of this flow of thought and how it, how it goes about. This is a, this is a t- typical move by, that Jesus is making in this Gospel of going into Judea and then going back out to, to the Gentile regions outside of the land of Judah. And he has a particular purpose in mind when he's doing that too. It's not just simply for Jesus to get a rest. He even though there are times in the Gospel of Mark where he goes out to do that. But every time that Jesus goes out of Judea and into the, into, the, into the wilderness, out into the lands of other cities, he always has a purpose in mind. And that purpose is put on display here, hence why, we see, why it's uh, titled as his mission to the Gentiles. And it's not to any Gentile in particular, any Gentile region in particular. He went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, 
looking at it on the face, what's so significant about Tyre and Sidon? What is this particular animosity that's happening between Jew and Gentile? Now, looking at it, looking at the sort of prejudices that come into, my, into frame here, you would, we, you would rightly think that there, that there is good reason for that. Jesus has mentioned Tyre and Sidon before in one of the Gospels, I think if I memory serves me correctly, even in this Gospel, of how there would be on the Day of Judgment a day more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Tyre and for Sidon. And what's for that reason? On this edge of the region, there's constant, there's constant fighting, there's constant taking of life. It's more than just simply the fact that Tyre and Sidon represents a region of people who are dominated by Gentile pagans. No, 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 these people really hate the Jews and their very existence. There are people today even that hate the, the existence of the Israeli state. But it's, it's not quite like that because this is really showing the consistent animosity and friction that happens throughout the entirety of the Bible of division between Jew and Gentile. And this is also that same division that Jesus comes to upset. And yet at the same time, this, this sort of animosity is going to continue to remain. In fact, it's, it's, not, it's more than just simply, than simply their taking of life, but when Jesus says that in particular, that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the, or, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment instead of Tyre and Sidon, it's always because that when Jesus is presented to them, when faith, they reject it. And so it's heaping more and more and it's showing the, the degradation, the severity of their sin in comparison to even Sodom and Gomorrah's. That's the sort of animosity, and yet Jesus still goes to them. Why would Jesus go to them? Is, is not what Paul says? For, is it not what Paul says first in Romans chapter one that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek? That plays itself out in the whole uh, whole of the Gospel of Mark. Is the covenant promises not made to Abraham? The promise of I will be a God to you and your children and those who are near and far off after you. Is that promise not made specifically to Abraham and his children? Yes, absolutely. And yet the consistent theme throughout is that eventually the Gentiles would be brought in. But yet there's still this tension, right? There's still this tension that we can continue to see in verse, in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, demon possessions and the issue of, of demon possessions and how they, they work, that it's consistent throughout this, throughout this gospel that uh, Jesus has consistent run-ins with demons and people possessed by them. Typically, Jesus will go, into, go to that person directly to cast them out, yet in this case, he doesn't. But before we get to that point, what we see here immediately is this, this same consistent issue of a woman being dominated by, whose daughters rather, dominated by an unclean spirit. And there are a couple of things here that stand out in this passage. Notice the description of the person who came. First, it was a woman. Second, it was a Gentile. Third of all, it was a Syrophoenician, someone who's born of that region in Tyre and Sidon. Why is that significant? In part, because in the patriarchal age in which Jesus is living in, women did not just approach men. They certainly didn't approach rabbis which is Jesus' image at this point. Women didn't do that, and particularly Gentile women didn't do that either, and especially, especially 
the people in whom Jesus is among, a Syrophoenician from the region of Tyre and Sidon, the worst of the worst, the vilest of the vile, the most hated of all types of people. That's who Jesus is going to. That's the sort of person that Jesus came to save, the one who is unlovely. And see, the thing about it is, with these Syrophoenicians, Jesus isn't just simply concerned with confronting the issue of food which defiles a person, but what's in front of them, too, is the fact that this is a person that they see this person as unclean. It's not just food. It's the person that they see as unclean. This wouldn't happen in ordinary conversation, and yet this is very much what comes to, to them. One of the things that I'm always reminded of is this, this, this sort of act of desperation here in this passage, too, of this woman who throws herself down at his feet. Now, if someone came to you searching for help and threw themselves down at your feet, you would probably be unnerved, maybe uncomfortable, depending on your pride, maybe even welcoming it. I don't know. But it's, uh, it's one of those things where she's, she's coming to the Lord out of an act of desperation. There's no indication that this woman has ever had an interaction with Jesus Christ. She may have heard of him, but she certainly never had any particular interactions with him, and yet she throws herself down at his feet against social stereotypes against gender stereotypes, it did not matter. She came to the foot of Jesus Christ, the person who they saw as the most unclean, who would defile this rabbi, who would defile even these people. This, this really disgusting person came and threw themselves down at Jesus' feet. And I have a question. Is there anybody in our lives that we might even consider the same way? To think of that same uh, analogy that we heard at the beginning, is there someone in our own minds that we believe is beyond the possibility of salvation? I want to draw that point home to you in this way because this was reminded to me uh, by a pastor friend of mine down in Greenville. He has a particular ministry where he goes into the prisons and he visits with people in the prisons to evangelize them, and that's his ministry. He interacts with people who are, who are guilty of more things than just simple petty theft. He's dealing with people who have murdered people, who have caused other types of physical and bodily harm, sexual abuse of any galore, and the seared consciences of these people, of these men that he's interacted with, he said would honestly blow you away. And yet he still goes, every time, offering the gospel, and yet they still repeatedly rejected. And now, to most of us, we would hear that, and we would say, what, you're just wasting your time. These people are exactly where they need to be, and they are. But they're not beyond necessarily the be, beyond the possibility of salvation. No one is beyond that ability unless they've committed the sin unto death that Jesus talks about elsewhere, but we don't know who's committed that sin necessarily. The Spirit of God does, because he's the one who's been sinned against. The consistent mission and model of Jesus is going to people who are the most undesirable, who are the most defiling, who may even be in the judgment and estimation of the, peop of the people of Israel at that day, people we wouldn't even dare go to. And Jesus goes to them because of his love for them, for sinners that all sinners anywhere may come and freely know Jesus Christ and come to him by faith, receive and rest upon him. That's why Jesus doesn't just simply turn her away. That's why he doesn't simply just say, get away from me, you're going to get me dirty, you're going to get me unclean ceremony. No, he says, 
He just, he just lets her come. He lets her come. And when, when, when that is our frame of mind, it, when that is the shift in which, we, in which we have, that we are modeling Jesus Christ's ministry here above going to those who are undesirable, going to those who no one else would go to, and consistently serving them, even if they may never profess faith in Jesus Christ, that is the modeling the mission that Jesus had to the Gentiles. But secondly, there's also the grace of the Gentiles as well. And we see that in verses 27 to 28. Look with me there. Notice what she says to him. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But then she answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, what's he saying here? This is something, this is, a, this is somewhat of insulting. I mean, I don't know about any of you, but if you were to be, to be called a dog by a particularly famous teacher, you would probably and rightly be very offended, very hurt, very ridiculed. But that's beside the point here, at least as far as Jesus is concerned. Je- notice what Jesus is saying. He's not speaking in terms of a, he's speaking in terms of an analogy. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to throw it to the dogs. What's he referring to here? Most commentators generally agree, and, and I'm just doing what the commentators say, and I believe they're right, is that he's keeping in frame of mind here in Romans chapter one of what Paul says earlier. I alluded to it. The salvation is to the Jew first, yet also to the Greek. He's, Jesus' mission, first and foremost, is to bring the salvation to that everlasting salvation, that longed-for hope that he had promised from ages gone by, that he would bring it to his people. And for all accounts in Jesus' ministry, they have not rejected it yet. One of, Jesus, one of Paul's later assertions in Romans chapter 11 is that one day, even though that the natural branches, speaking of Israel, are cut off from the people of God, they will one day be brought back in. Yet the consistent ministry of Jesus as their Messiah is to go first to the Jews and then to the Greek. That's what he's referring to here. And the fact that he's calling her a dog, it is, it is rather insulting. Now, you would think about it. I don't know how many of you have, have family pets at home. Maybe you've had dogs or you even have a dog. And you, you, I don't know how it is at your houses, but when I was growing up, we had a dog who she would, she would come up during the dinner table and she would sort of sit down and she would look up with her big brown eyes and say, say to us, like in a begging way, give, give me some food or something like that and I'll go away even though she never did. And she'd always go to the same person, too. So it was like, you know, I never got to be able to see her do that. But anyway, you would h- hardly think of, like, of, of a dog being ridiculed or being talked about like that. You have your family dog. And what Jesus has in mind here, he's drawing on something else here as far as dogs are concerned as how they were viewed in his day. They were not viewed like my dog. They were not viewed like your dog. They were viewed as dirty mongrels, scavengers. I mean, they would eat carcasses. They, they were just generally unclean animals. You just didn't touch them. A very different conception for how we have them, think of them today. And yet Jesus is analogy, uh, drawing that analogy to her to show you just what the Jews think of them. They think of them as defiling dogs who eat and scavenge and, do whatever, and get whatever they can to get the crumbs, as it were to get what's good even though they don't deserve it. And what does she say here, even as Jesus is, is drawing this analogy? She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the, ta- under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she's saying is, is she's saying, I understand your mission. 
I understand what you came to do, but I know who you are. You're not somebody who's like all of these other people that are around me, around in Jesus' day, like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees, who would tell me not even to come into the temple of God, who even set up marketplaces for, for the Jews to operate where they would completely kick the Gentiles out of worship altogether. I know that you are not like them. I know that, you, that, the, that the food, the bread of life that you are giving them, which is yourself, yes, even though it is for them, yet I know that there is enough for me. I know that there is enough grace there even for me. A dirty, yes, sinful, Gentile, Syrophoenician woman who is just like these dogs that you are comp- comparing me to. But I know who you are. I know I don't deserve your grace. I know I don't deserve a place at the table, and yet that place is still offered and she still comes. And that teaches us something really, really rather important is that this is, has to be the frame of our, of our minds to be able to receive the grace of God. It teaches us that you know, we have to remember that when it comes to God's grace, we do not deserve it but we remember who our Savior is and we remember who he is. And so it posits to you the different types of frame. Are you like the Pharisees or are you like the, or are you like the tax collectors and the sinners and the Gentiles? What am I drawing the analogy to? This is what I'm pointing out. One of Jesus' parables in drawing the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee is that he, he posits the, these, two, these two pictures. One person on the one hand who's standing up, looking up to heaven, justifying himself before God and saying, God, I thank you I am not like this tax collector. I thank you I am not like him. And yet you see the tax collector on the other hand just beating his breast, unable even to look up to heaven, and he says, Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And who went away more justified, Jesus asks. The question is easy to answer. Definitely it was the tax collector because he knew who he was before the sight of God and he knows who each and every last one of us are before God and that is why we need all the more grace of God that he so freely offers so that when you're comparing yourself to somebody else, when you're comparing yourself to to a new Christian or an older Christian or someone who's not even a Christian at all, if the, the sort of things that come into our minds are how much better I am than them, we forget something that's very, very important that I and you and everyone else are as big a sinner as they are and no more deserving of God's grace, and yet he freely gives it. Another thing that we see here, though, is that this grace is indeed given. Verse 29, And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Now Jesus certainly grants her request here. For this statement you may go your way. Is he drawing this, this, this uh, statement to say, you know, you're, you're just saying this because, you know, I, I said something right or wrong? What, what are you saying here? What he's answering to and granting her request is he's not just simply saying just, you know, you answered correctly, you, you played into my parable rightly. What he's saying is you're, you get something that the people of God do not get, and at least in Jesus' day. You're understanding something that the Jews and the Pharisees don't understand. You understand something that even my, my own disciples don't understand. You understand that, I, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners who's come to deliver his people. 
That's what you understand. That's what is missed upon everybody else that Jesus is administering to at that point. And so, yes, he does grant her. Now, there is, there is this reality, too. He says, go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Typically, when Jesus goes to cast out demons, he doesn't do so with any sort of, uh, with pomp and circumstance. He just, he goes in there. But in this case, he doesn't. But it shows you the power of Jesus in granting the request of this woman. That he has the power in that instant to let it go, to send the demon away. And that's exactly what happens. That's where she finds the child. It shows us more of how even at a word, Jesus, when we come to Christ in, in receiving faith, that even he in that moment, the hour a sinner believes, is saved and continuously saves us to that very day. But it also shows us something important too. This woman is trusting Jesus as a total stranger, not simply for his power, but for who he is. And that's something we need to remember, too, when we come to Christ. A lot of us have a lot of different gifts and talents and graces. But when we come to Christ, we're not coming to him just simply for what he can do for us, what he can do for our church, what he can do in our lives to, to make things work, to make things better, though he can do, though he can do that. We're trusting him for who he is. And that even if nothing else goes right, if everything before us goes wrong, that Jesus Christ indeed is still going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. To carry our burdens, to carry our lots in life, to bring us safely, finally home, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. We trust him because of his word that says this day, to the, to the thief on the cross, this day, you will be with me in paradise. That, is same, that same is very much offered to you. To give himself to you and therefore to then follow him. Jesus' work here is, is to show us something very important that the gospel is to you as well. His grace and his mission is to offer it to people who do not deserve it. And whether we, you want to, to forgive or be gracious to someone you dislike, maybe even hate, we know that the response shouldn't be least of all to... Uh, to just say they're beyond salvation, but even to offer that salvation to, to continue to pray for them. And to remember that you and I were such people at one point too. You and I were the person that we, nobody else would look to and that everybody else would just say they're beyond help. But Jesus comes to you because of his love for sinners and that he invites you to come because of his love for you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will remember us, remind us again of the grace of your salvation. And I pray that you will impress the truths upon our hearts, that we may live this life that you have called us to live in the beloved. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn is Wonderful Words of Life, hymn 697. Hymn 697, Wonderful Words of Life, verses 1 and 3. Stand with me as we sing.